0: I am Kevin. I am Giovanna. I am adventurous.
1: I am dreamer. I
0: am creative. I am wine. I am dance. I am
1: entrepreneur. I
0: am musician. I am privileged. I am activist. I am podcast.
1: Learning. Growing inspiring hello everybody and welcome again to the i am podcast today i could not be more excited because we have some really really great information that we're going to get into we have a special guest today his name is jay jordan and i'm just going to jump right into his bio that we have here so we can get to the to the to the meaty stuff uh, but this this is great our guest today has worked at the intersection of social justice and politics throughout his career he is the executive director of californians for safety and justice Jay launched the innovative youth organization program, The First 50, which in his first year saw both 100% high school graduation and college enrollment. Wow! 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 Woo, he has been yes. recognized over 20 times, including the American Red Cross 2014 Hero of the Year Award, the Literacy Foundation Innovative Library Concept Award, and a special congressional recognition for outstanding youth program. He made history by becoming the first and only formerly incarcerated field director for Congressman Jerry McNerney's successful re-election campaign. Please help us welcome Mr. Jay Jordan today. Ooh, thank you, Jay. Ooh. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Good afternoon, y'all. Good afternoon.
0: Hello, Thanks hello. for blessing us with your presence. Yes, and we are so excited. Just to get into the conversation, You know, we really try to inspire, educate, and activate. And I think that that... You were one of the perfect people to speak with in terms of all of those three terms, um, because I think you've lived it by what you know—the little bit that we've read about you—and so we're just excited to get to talk to you and hear your story. And I think that's maybe where we can start off—is just please tell our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So um, you know, uh, in order to even talk about policies, I think it's important to ground ourselves in who we are. Um and where we're going, uh, uh, there's a the phrase that I heard the other day that is kind of like resonating with me right now so much, and it's um, if you knew everything about tomorrow, what would you do differently today? And so you know, I want to spend you know the little time I have with y'all to kind of answer that question at the end. So I'm gonna ask it again, and then we can kind of answer it at the end. If you knew, if we knew everything about tomorrow, what would we do differently today? Um, so I'm the son of old country preacher from Oak Muggy, Oklahoma, right? Uh, and and a city girl from Watts. And if you ask those two people how they met, the story like differs. You ask, my, you ask my dad, he would say that he moved to California, you know, was driving around Watts and every day this young, beautiful black queen would flag him down and, you know, ask him for a ride every day, right? And he finally gave in. So if you ask my mom, about that story, she would say that this old creepy guy would follow her home in this old car every day. It tells you, like you know, there's always three sides to every story. The the side that I know is that two people fell in love and had eight amazing children. I am the last of eight, um, two boys and six girls. She moved to Stockton, California, in the late '70s when there was an opioid crisis and deindustrialization was happening. So a lot of the manufacturing jobs were leaving some of these middle American cities and towns. And my dad opened up the small church and, you know, grew that church. It was a, it was a real uh, fire and brimstone black, you know, cornerstone church in a Masonic lodge. And I grew up, you know, in the hood, you know, until the age of like 10 and My mom finished college and she got her master's degree, and my dad went back to college. and uh, My mom worked, and he got his doctorate, and he opened up a larger church, a more multicultural church in the center of downtown Stockton, where a lot of, you know, the 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 pain and the really visualization and uh, actualization of oppression and disenfranchisement and redlining were you you could it it was palpable, Uh, and so I grew up. Um, seeing what um, community looks like. Grew up, my dad opening the church seven days a week, 24 hours a day. There was not a time where I can remember where the church was really closed. There was not a time that I can remember where our house was off limits to people who were homeless and addicted and, you know, cast out from society because of their sexual orientation. And mind you, my dad is a, a religious conservative. And so him being him being able to, like, cast the religious um, beliefs and ideology aside and say, you know, I'm doing God's work and I'm building that beloved community really inspired me from very young age. And then when we, you know, started to get more economically sound of the family, we moved out of the hood and moved into suburban America, you know? Um, And that's when really my trouble started uh, because, you know, I felt at home living with my people. I moved, you know, to a white neighborhood to be um, more frank and I didn't feel at home. You know, Mm. I would be, Uh, The first to be picked in two-hand touch football and pick up basketball and the last to be offered an opportunity to go in somebody's house and play a video game Right, Mm -hmm. you know, I would see, you know, my friend's parents look at me differently and I felt it, you know And as a kid, I didn't know that it was implicit bias or, you know, um, you know it, It wasn't racism, but it was something there that I just couldn't explain and so I didn't want to play with them. I didn't want to go to their home. So I would go and to back to you know where my friends were at. And that caused me to go down a path and diverge from my family's you know teachings to uh, a, a life of, you know, 14, 15, being rebellious, saying that God can't answer all my questions. You know, I don't want to be around white folks. They treat me different. Right. And my dad, me and my dad had a split. And I remember leaving home at 15 and not looking back. You know, and from 15 to 19, was homeless and, you know, uh, um, using drugs and, you know, got into some legal trouble when I was 16 for stealing some alcohol and, you know, got beat up by the police. I mean, you know, my first introduction to police was the police at the church drawing guns on us when I was 12, right? So I had like this visceral kind of response to police. And, you know, age 19, I was finally caught up with me. I was convicted of robbery. 10 months after my 18th birthday, turning 19, two months later, and I turned 19 in the county's jail in in, in San Joaquin County in Stockton. And, you know, I served eight years. Um, While I was in prison, I did two years in a hole, Um, did two years in solitary confinement. And that's when really my um, life began to change. Not really my life, but my perception of who I was, right? Like that square I wanted to remain on. And I was asked this question early on in my shoe term. We call them shoes. It's an acronym for segregated housing unit. It's essentially a person being in the hole, right, for an extended period of time. And like the second or third day I was there, somebody asked me a question about who was I. So I sounded off, you know, I'm J.O. from Northside Gangster Crip. And he responded, no, that's what you are. Ask who you are. And I cannot answer the question. And like I broke down for a month. I was in a very depressed state. I'm a two striker. So you know, um, this was going to be my third strike, uh, you know, and I didn't know what to do. Um, but I knew through tears and through self-reflection and praying to whatever was out there that um, I was going to get it right. And I remember six months into my shoot term, I didn't get any letters or, or anything. And, you know, when you're in the hole, it's literally 24 hours a day and you only shower three times a week um, and you, you go to the yard three times a week. And so I remember, you know, they um, I heard the the, the the keys jingling, um um uh, and the keys on the side of the CEO's pants, and they stopped at my door. They never stop at my door, you know. Um, and they're like, "Jordan, you got a visit," and I'm like, "Oh shit, this is, you know, um, this is uh my lawyer coming to tell me that I'm being struck out. They're gonna file charges because you know of the riot and somebody got hurt. And so, I remember going to the visiting room, and it was. It was 147 steps, 148 steps, and um, all those steps, I was shaking. And I got to the visiting room, and I sat down. It was, I seen the glass, and I seen my face glaring on, you know, the window there. And I put my head down because I didn't want to see like my life flash before my eyes when this disheveled public defender walked in and say, "Hey, Mr. Jordan, they're filing against you." I didn't want to see that. Um, and I remember the door opening and closing, and you know, I heard two people sit down. I'm like, "Oh, they're bringing backups. This must be bad." And I looked up and it was my mom and my dad. And uh, the first thing my dad told to me, he said to me, well, son, I'm proud of you. Now, mind you, me and my dad didn't have a good relationship after the age like 13, 14. Right. Um, and for him to come and drive 300 miles in the mountains, in the snow and tell his son, one of his only sons, that um, he's proud of me after I like, you know, like. My dad was a prominent figure in Stockton here. Like he—he he wasn't a nobody, right? So, so for his son to go to prison was big news, and um, for him to say that really broke me down. I remember it through tears. I'm like, I don't know why you said that. But I'm gonna make you proud of me, right? And we had this really robust conversation around like me not knowing who I was, but having these feelings of like, you know, a, a, a foundation. that I did not know where where it came from. He's like, son, I showed you what it meant to be a man. I showed you what it meant to be a father. I showed you what it meant to be a friend. I showed you what it meant to be a husband. I didn't tell you these things. I showed you, you mm-hmm. know, and those, those things that I went back to myself and I built upon. So for the next 18 months, um, I, you know, dug into who I wanted to be, which is fast forwarding to the policy. I knew that there was something systematically wrong with this country. I knew that there was something systematically wrong with how I ended up there, and, and how, by the grace of God, you know, I was going to go to somewhere else. And you know, so in that um, in that time, I wrote a book. I wrote um, du- uh, over a dozen screenplays. I wrote a master thesis called "I Am," and I really dug into like what it meant to be Jay Jordan, right? You know. I, I, I remember going back to my cell and picking up my pants like I'm not going to sag anymore. You know what I mean? Like it was, it, right. it was like very visual, like, you know, why have I been acting like this? Why have I, I've been labeling myself a crip, a thug, a gangster? you know, uh, um, like those are all labels, you know, um, and it wasn't the truly essence of who I was. And so thank God I didn't get struck out. Fast forward, got out of prison in 2012. And I remember um, tr- I had all these plans Written Like I, I had literally how I was going to make a million dollars before I was 30. And I was 27, 26 at the time when I got out on um, January 19th of 2012. And I said, OK, I'm going to sell used cars. I'm going to open up a barbershop. I'm going to sell insurance and real estate on the side because that's easy. I, c- I can make commission. And one by one, as I started to try to do what I wanted to do, I realized because of my felony convictions that I couldn't do any of that stuff. I couldn't sell used cars couldn't sell real estate, couldn't sell insurance couldn't become a barber. Um, I applied for dozens of jobs, couldn't get jobs. And so I ended up taking a job in a freezer, driving a forklift for 11 bucks an hour. And I didn't want that to be my destiny night. So I said, I'm gonna start selling vending machines. So I gathered up some money and I started selling vending machines. And that lasted and I was blessed to grow that business. And when I wanted to do some work in Stockton with Tubbs, he was like, hey, go to Franklin um, uh, uh, now Mayor Michael Tubbs of Stockton—he was running for a city council. He said, "Hey, go to Franklin, start a youth mentoring program, and tell the kids about, um, you know, like where you went wrong, so they won't go down that path." And that's what started the first 50. And I remember the day before um, we were going to launch, and we had support from, you know, the political spectrum all the way to the U.S. Senate, all the way down to city council. I mean, the police chief, the mayor, the city council, the district attorney, the judge—Judge judge Blaviano is a personal friend of mine. You know, like all these folks were there supporting these kids. And I had talked to all the parents about my experience done done assemblies like was on campus, like, you know, getting ready for this big launch, of this new program in Stockton to really empower and inspire kids, but also teach them about civic education, you know, teach them about how the world really works. Right. And where they fit in the world. I saw that being a problem for me. I didn't know where I fit in the world. I just thought things were supposed to be given to me. I didn't know I had to work for them. And there was this whole infrastructure built before I came that called life and being an adult, right? And, you know, I was like, kids need to know that, right? Um, right. I remember the night before, um, the school board president called me and said, hey, Mr. Jordan, none of this was ran by me. I know you have all the support and, the, and other board members and the principal supports you, but because I'm the school board president, you didn't run it by me. Um, I looked you up. You have a felony and you can't do this program. You got to shut it down. And so I cried for the first time since I saw my parents um, in the hole. And I was like, I'll, I'll, I just want to help. And you know, I can't even I, I can't work. I can't even volunteer my time at a school. And so I had to call all the parents one by one that night. I remember it took me like three hours to call all of them. And one by one, they're like, we don't care. We, we know your story. Um, let's do it at your dad's church. And, and my dad's church has happened to be like a mile from the school where we were originally going to do it at. And um, we were able to do it. And everybody yeah. showed up. And that was the first 50. And you know, we were named the Red Cross Hero of the Year for um, all of our efforts. Um, and all those kids, the first 50 kids, were graduated. And I ended up not having any money at the end of it. I, I was broke again because I used all my money from my vending machine business to work with these kids. We had a wonderful experience. And that's when the congressman McNerney called me and said, we want you to run my field program. And I'm like, I'm on parole. You're like, well, you are an amazing organizer and run it. And I took the job and we won by the largest win margin that he ever had as a congressman, his last three cycles. Uh, And then after that, I didn't find a job again. So I moved to LA and I was homeless for three months, sleeping in my car. And I got an opportunity to work for an organization called PICO in Los Angeles. And I was organizing black churches and. Um, uh, mothers who had lost uh, uh, sons and daughters to gang violence. And, you know, on the other side, I would bring them together with um, the parents who had lost their sons and daughters to, you know, the prison system. And um, we organized our butts off and we're set to launch this huge initiative. And I got a call from Californians for Safety and Justice, Mr. Robert Brooks. And he asked me a question that still gives me chills today. He said, where do you want to be at in 10 years and what do you want to make? And I said, I want to lead an organization, a movement that is allowing people that serve their time like me to go on and live their life. You know, I want to give folks a second chance. I want to raise awareness about the tens of thousands of legal restrictions that people like me face, you know, long after we serve our sentence. Um, And I want to make, you know, over $100,000 a year. And he didn't contact me for a month and a half. Then he called me up and he offered me a job doing just that. Fast forward five years later, now I lead the largest criminal justice reform organization in the state. We are the largest state and the largest effort, um, a part of AFJ, Alliance for Safety and Justice, which is the largest criminal justice reform organization in the country. Um, To date, since 2012, since we've been um, around, we have collectively in the eight states, we have stopped over 50,000 people from going into prisons and jails through policies. We passed over 40 bills, 40 laws. Um, We reallocated close to a billion dollars in savings and reallocated that money from prisons to things like workforce development and education and victim services uh, and homelessness. We uh, closed down, we helped us close down two prisons in Michigan and we um, um, decriminalized marijuana in Illinois. Uh, we worked alongside our brother uh, Desmond Mead um, in Florida to give the uh, right to vote back to 1.3, 1.4 million Floridians um, with felonies. Um, we just kind of deal with the governor's office to close down two prisons in California. And so um, we are on a roll here and uh, we're not going to stop. I also lead an effort called Time Done. It's a, a flagship program in California. And we just got funded an effort to automate the expungement process for about three million people in California with records. So after you start in January 2021, after you complete probation, your record will be automatically expunged. And we're looking to do that across the country for the more than 70 million people that have criminal records. And so that's my story and that's where we're at now i'm
0: amazing (laughs) okay (laughs) my mind is blown i know i'm like crying i'm like inspired (laughs) it's amazing wow yeah
1: i know that your story connects with so many of the people you've met that's similar it's funny because i'm listening to you and so much of your life in small ways parallels mine like my my grandparents from oklahoma uh they moved out because of the dust bowl fast forward you know however my parents met my parents had me when they were 18. Dad didn't really know what he wanted to do. We had to go out find a job. He ended up working with some people and, and wasn't getting the pay he needed. So he started his own business. Uh, through that, we ended up moving from kind of the hoodie area to a nicer area when I was in high school. When I struggled a lot, that same thing. i mean, you know, in the hood, the hood, place where we hung out. Everybody was outside. You just hung. You knew everybody. You moved to the other side, and nobody was outside. People wouldn't wave. I'm like, man, the same kind of thing. And, and you know. Fortunately, I went away to school, and I think that's what pulled me out of just staying with the friends and the mess. But it's so interesting how many times that story is probably, I'm sure you've seen, told over and over and over again. How amazing that you're at the crux of, I mean, everything that's happening now was really coming to your corner in terms of, like, the police reform and all these things. We're seeing where, you know, it's all coming from. And it's so amazing to hear all the progress that you're you've already made. And it's like people are coming to the table and I'm sure you're like, man, we've been doing this, but it's great if we can get help. I mean, I guess where is that yeah. for people that are just now like us learning a, about you? What are, what are
2: some of the key things that you're really focusing on like right now?
0: Where can we help or get involved?
2: There was a deal that was made, right? Like there's this there's a deal. People don't realize this. Like this is you know, this is an ongoing negotiation between America and Black folk, right? This is an ongoing negotiation. This is not anything new. When when the civil rights bill was passed, right, there was a corresponding bill in 1968, which was supposed to be implementation, right? There's always like a bill passed and either a funding piece that goes to it or implementation piece that goes to it. Like If you look at the implementation of civil rights and integration, they did it horribly wrong, right? Horribly wrong. They forced... Blacks are going to certain schools with the National Guard. White folks are like, we're not used to this. Teachers are like, what are we going to do? Black folks are like, I want to do it, but I'm scared, right? It was horribly written in terms of implementation. But the deal that was cut with 1968 was called the Omnibus Crime Bill. And this bill was like, okay, how are we going to help the Black community? Well, what happened was, you know, there was two sets of recommendations. One recommendation was this system this country has really screwed over Black folks and people of color. And, you know, there are some fundamental changes that need to happen to all these institutions in order for Black folks to actually thrive in their communities. The other recommendation was all Black folks need is more policing and more law enforcement infrastructure. That's what so they passed a ni- 1968 Omnibus Crime Bill. I encourage everyone to read that bill because that was the deal. When you think about how police got into black neighborhoods. Mind you, police used to come from other part of the city to come to black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Now police have substations in projects. Police have substations in communities. So they're in there. And it was an intentional effort to over-police because there was this sense that because there was all this uprising in 1967 and 1968, remember, it was 100 cities across the country that were rioting in 1967 and 1968. Mm. I mean, Detroit, L.A., Baltimore, Jersey, New York, they were burning cities down because they were like, you integrated us, but you redlined us, right? You integrated us, but you didn't give us any resources, Mm. right? Yeah. So people were visibly upset, and the response to that was, we need a better policing apparatus, Mm. right? So that was the deal that happened. And then take into account redlining, Right. Where people were like, OK, well, I want to move out of these conditions. Right. Because of the last you know, 200 years, you've essentially created the ghetto, you know, and made these conditions really, really horrible. And when they had like the Harlem's and the Greenwood, those were destroyed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. these conditions were made when black folks said, OK, we can be integrated now and tried to move out. They redlined them and said you can only live in the ghetto. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people would go. You had you had families move from you know, Oklahoma or Baltimore or New York to just another ghetto in another city, right? And then you had deindustrialization in the 1970s that essentially we went from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. So all the manufacturing jobs left in Detroit and parts of New York Mm -hmm. and, and for the most part in the port cities of California. And so you've seen all these jobs leave and the people who worked in those were blue collar white folks and a lot of black folks and immigrants. So they lost their jobs and they couldn't leave these small communities. Right. And then you had heroin hit. And then people come home from the war in Vietnam and the black folks that were messed up, like go back to these communities. And what did they do? <laughs> right? Instead of giving them the mental treatment they needed, they closed down mental institutions. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. My God. And so and so like they created this pressure case. Then you start to see the rise of homelessness in the 1980s and then crack hit. And what did they do? Instead of calling it a public health crisis, they said they need more police. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right? And in the 90s, when you had these generational kind of things happening, and so these kids in the 90s grew up and was like, you know what? F the police. Yeah. Right? I'm going to protect my set because my set is impoverished, Mm -hmm. they start game-banging, and people are like, where does this game-banging come from? It comes from seeing your mama and your grandmama and your great-grandmama suffer because of uh, intentional government policies that were passed, disenfranchisement, and an overlooking of the people. Right, Mm -hmm. and so that's what happened, and now what we have now is people saying, well, you know, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, that's been happening for, for decades in this country. And it was laws, right, that we can point to that said this is where we went wrong. And so what we do now as an organization, as a tactic, right. we do criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. not as an end, as a means to an end. Our end goal, that beloved community, is to build what safety means, to redefine what safety is in America for black folks, for people of color, for poor people more broadly, right? In this country, poor people, right, and particularly black folks, have not been safe. Not economically, not health-wise, and not physical, right? Mm-hmm. There haven't been any physical safety. Right. And so we're saying that we need safety, and so there are some very clear things that we are doing as an organization and as a broader movement in this time. Mm-hmm. When you hear defund the police, that is the same thing white conservatives are saying when they say, we don't want big government. Mm-hmm. But we- Institutions yeah. involved, they say we well, all were saying two different things. No, like poor communities are saying we don't want police, we don't want big government. Mm-hmm. White folks are saying we don't like big government. We're saying the same thing, right? right? At, at, at the core. white folks say we want police. Black folks say we want uh, resources. We're all saying we want safety. Exactly. We want security. We want to just be able to live. Yes. Yeah, that's the fundamental human like right that. That is the goal. So for us, we're saying what creates safety? And, and I want to ask the question again, right? What creates safety? I want folks who are listening into y'all to think about a safe community. Think about it aesthetically. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What do you see? What do you hear? When I think of safe community, I think about manicured grass, I think about two-hand the touch park. football. I think about parks, right? Yeah, schools, yeah. playgrounds. Schools, yeah, kids right. out playing, right? You know what I mean? by you yeah. out, right? <laughs> Exactly. Like, and and in order to get that, right? Those manicured lawns, those schools, those parks, those programs, it takes money. Absolutely. Right. Then, when you think about where public safety dollars go to now, mm-hmm. in California. We spend $50 billion on public safety, $50 billion on courts, prisons, jails, you name it, right? Local and state, $50 billion every single year from taxpayers go to public safety. How much of that money do you think actually goes to what you visualize as safety? Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the line, we got to this, you know, well, we know what safety is. We know what it makes, how it makes us feel but the money coming out of our pockets to pay for that safety is going to build this institution called public safety that have nothing to do with what we know safety is mm-hmm. and so us the organization is saying that we have to pass laws and policies that take money away from a bloated criminal justice system mm-hmm. and put it into things that create safety yes people need to be held accountable we need to figure out a better way of doing that we need to figure out the underlying causes of criminality and address that both on the front end during incarceration, if folks, you know, if that's what states want to do. And then after they get out, right, we need to ensure that people have the resources they need to be successful. But we don't need a lot of money doing that. We don't need a robust system to do that. We need a very effective, small, intentional system to say, Jay Jordan, you got caught stealing some Hennessy when you're 16, right? And you went to juvenile hall. Let's do an intervention to this kid it costs close to $200,000 to how this person in juvenile, J. Jordan juvenile hall, $200,000. We could invest $50,000 in sending him to a program or sending him to, you know, a college or something. Right. $50,000 in savings that could have then went towards a whole program for at-risk youth. Right. And so rethinking how we view these things. And so I want to ask the question again, if we knew everything about tomorrow, <laughs> What would we do differently today? Mm-hmm. And I would venture to say, we do know everything about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know what happens when you cut a deal with black folks and poor people in America, mm-hmm. and, and instead of giving them safety and integration, you give them police and divestment, right? When you build prisons and jails, you know, when veterans come home and you don't give them the resources they need to heal and be successful, when you address addiction with prison, when you address homelessness with jails, when you address mental illness with cages, you get mass incarceration. You get more homelessness. You get more mentally ill people wandering the streets of L.A. and San Francisco and Sacramento like they're zombies. You get that. So we know everything about tomorrow. What we're doing differently today is we have some very clear laws, both in California and in other areas, of the state, which we are focused on passing and and defeating some laws we have to defeat to get to that vision of safety.
0: So jumping right on the back of that, there's a couple of things I want to ask about, but voting. I mean, we're, we're coming up in November here. The call to vote is so loud right now, and it's exciting. But can you tell us a little bit about the things that are on the ballots that will help us get educated about that, where we can look for that and where our listeners can look for that? So when we get to the polls, we're informed on those boxes that we're ticking, Or when we mail in our ballots, <laughs> we're informed about those boxes.
2: Yeah, so you can easily go to Ballotpedia or the Secretary of State website. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sos.ca.gov. Uh, um, and there's a section on there called the Qualified Statewide Ballot Measures, right? Okay. So sos.ca.gov. Perfect. And then um, Qualified Um, statewide ballot measures. uh, One thing I'll say before I answer that question is, all you have to do is Google stuff and say, what is on the ballot in California? Or what laws do I have to vote on in California? And it would direct you to things like this. And so there are a few key ones on the ballot in California. I'll start with the most egregious one, Prop 20. Prop 20 is an effort by, I kid you not, like, I kid you not, is an effort by police unions, right? It's bankrolled by police officers associations. That's the local um, street cops and their unions Yep. to roll back criminal justice reforms in California. Um, Prop 20 would do three things. It would lower the felony threshold in California. To the felony threshold is how much you got, like if you steal something, how much of the cost you get a felony or a misdemeanor, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. In, in, in other states, we like they raised the felony threshold because they realized like, all these kids were like getting caught up for stealing bikes and getting felonies. They're like, that's crazy, right? In California, we raised it in 2014 from $450 to $950. These cops want to lower the felony threshold from 950 to $250. Wow. <laughs> By comparison, Texas, their felony threshold, $2,500. Wow. This would be the second lowest felony threshold in the country. The second thing Prop 20 would do is it would mandate that um, when people are on probation, that if they like uh, don't find a job in 60 days, give their PO a bad address, or like you know give a dirty drug test or whatever, those things are called technical violation. They're non-criminal. They didn't commit a new crime, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You don't go back to prison right now. They just get services, get resources, right? Prop 20 would mandate that probation officers send those people back to prison. And so that's the reason why the California Probation Chiefs Association is opposed to Prop 20. They're like, why would you tie our hands? We don't want to do that. Like the probation chiefs are like, that's wrong. The third thing it would do is in California right now, we have these long sentences, like these very long sentences. And um, there's a process called nonviolent parole process, right? So where you serve the longest part of your sentence, which is like 10, 15 years, and you do all these rehabilitative courses, right? You do all this rehabilitation, all this stuff like I did, right? I took a bunch of courses, do all these courses. And then after that, the longest part of your sentence, you go in front of a parole board and you say, hey, this is what I've done. You know, can I get out? And this is for everyone outside of murder and rape, right? But we wanted to make it for everybody because rehabilitation, you rather have somebody getting out, you know, after they served these long time and being rehabilitated so they don't commit no more crimes. Huh. You know, and someone just standing in there doing nothing. I've seen what I've seen what happens. I did four years and did nothing in politics. And I got I got into a ride and somebody got hurt. Right. That's what happens when you stay in prison and don't do nothing. Right. So I know exactly what happens. So we passed this law in 2016 that allowed mostly everybody to do it. They want to take that away. They wanna say no rehabilitation, serve 100% of your sentence, and let people out with no pro process, no nothing. The California Partnership to End Domestic Violence, the National Center for Crime Victims, the California Teachers Association, the California Labor Federation, the Democratic Party of California are like, heck no. Yeah. Are you crazy? You want people to stay in prison with no rehabilitation and get out to our streets?
0: That, yeah, that's where I'm scratching my head. It's like, why would the police even put that forth? I mean, if they're seeing on the ground what the result of that is, is it just money? It's just, wow.
2: <laughs> and what they're saying, what 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 voters are going to hear is rape of an unconscious person is not considered violent in California. We just want to make it violent. Felony child abuse is not considered violent in California. We just want to make it violent. I don't know any DA in the state of California that will get a case of felony child abuse and not give that person and throw the book at that person, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so they're like, this has nothing to do with sentencing. What they're saying is we don't want, we don't believe these people can be rehabilitated. So we just want them to serve 17 years instead of 15 years with rehabilitation, Right. Yeah. And that's the core of their argument. And it's a danger, a dangerous argument, because on face value, when you see these ads and you're a woman, you're saying rape is, isn't violent. That should be violent. I'm gonna vote. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Without going deeper and saying, actually, if someone's in prison for rape and either you have a choice of them serving 11 years with no rehabilitation whatsoever or 10 years with a bunch of rehabilitation and to be screened before they get out. Which would you choose? Of mm-hmm. course, right, right, and so, but, but law enforcement—they're tricky, right? And so they, and so they put all this in one ballot initiative. And the last thing it does, which is insane to me, is it, um, if you get convicted of cho- shoplifting, you have to give your DNA. What? <gasps> <Right? laughs> yeah. So, so that's Prop Twenty. So we're we're like all opposed to Prop Twenty. I uh, just wanted to like spend some time on, particularly on Prop Twenty, Absolutely. but other Two more really quick, um, Prop 17, it would give people on parole the right to vote. So after people get off, get out of prison, you know, uh, when they're on parole, they don't have the right to vote. We're like, doesn't make any sense. If someone is participating into the political process, they're not gonna commit crime. They're more likely not to commit crime if they wanna go and vote for whatever, right? right. Prop 17 just restores the right to vote for people on parole. We think that it's important because, I mean, no one should lose the right to vote after what this country has been through. Prop 25 is ending money bail. So right now we have a system to where you have to pay to get out of prison. Like no matter how guilty you are, there's a mm-hmm. price tag on on freedom. You know, like Brian Stevenson says, your ability to pay holds more weight than culpability in terms of the justice system. So if you have a million dollars and then you murder somebody, you can get out. But if you stole a candy bar and you don't have $20,000, you can't get out. And most of that affects poor people and people of color. And so, you know, we want to get rid of the money bail system, the money bail cartel, we call them, because it's a Mm -hmm. surety company that are making billions of dollars off the back of poor people. We want to move them out of California and go to a system of risk-based assessment. So, you know, most people um, that go into the system, they get out um, and they're connected to services. The more serious crimes, we figured out like case by case basis, does this person pose a public safety risk? If we let this person out, are they going to go and harm somebody else? And so, November in yes on Prop 17, no on Prop 20, yes, <laughs> no, 20. Some notable ones which I think y'all will appreciate Prop 15, property taxes. Right now, we have a system to where. Prop uh, 13 that passed a long time ago, big corporations, um, still pays uh, property taxes from like the 1980s, right? <laughs> and uh, um, and this law would just make them pay 2020 taxes like everybody else, so even the playing field. And this would increase funding to schools. As y'all know, school funding comes from property tax. Yep. This would increase funding to schools from places like Disneyland and like GM and all these big, big mm-hmm. institutional folks. Um, It would increase school funding by over a billion dollars every year. And there is also Prop 16, which is uh, affirmative action, bringing back affirmative action, ensuring that institutions can actually say we prefer or we want to hire more black people. Right now, they can't say that because legally we took out affirmative action. Um, We want to bring it back and say it's okay for people to say they want to hire people of color like that's okay. And so that Prop 15, definitely, yes. Uh, um, commercial property tax, more money for schools. Prop 16, definitely yes. Uh, bringing back affirmative action in California. Prop 17, giving folks the right to vote back, definitely yes. Prop 20, hell no. Uh, <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> hell to the no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow, I'm so excited! Like this is exactly what what we're aiming to do, and I hope that our listeners are inspired by this too, because. I mean, it's so important. You know, how many times did I walk up to the ballot so box times. and just click the name I liked or, you know, read the little description, like didn't go deeper, didn't know to go deeper and didn't really know where to look for information. And so, we're and hoping... these props and bills are written so cleverly that you don't really understand, especially at that age. Exactly. So are there any resources or maybe videos for young kids to watch where these are clearly explained just like you did?
2: Yeah, so that's the problem, right? I would say look, and I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, um, but there is a resource that I think is the best resource, um, because they have a new head. Um, his name is Rusty Hicks. Uh he's the head of the California Democratic Party and they go through extreme vetting process and their process is, you know, they meet with both sides, you know, and they say, you know, hey man, you know, what what do you stand for? What is this? And they give an endorsement. I think they're Obviously, you know they're going to endorse their Democratic um, candidates, but in terms of the issues, they're very thorough. Um, and Rusty's a stand-up dude. He comes from labor, um, so he's worked with a lot of law enforcement before, and so he's no—he's no nonsense. He's—he's he's not an institutional guy. He's fairly new; haven't been in the job a year yet. I really respect the guy, Rusty Hicks. And so I would look at the Democratic slate and look at what is on, you know, their slate, and and they give you. Like the title and summary. So, every ballot initiative, every initiative on the ballot, they have what is called a title and summary. Then you have the ballot arguments. Again, some of those ballot arguments are factually untrue. Like Prop 20, their ballot argument is like, he slashed at me with a knife, you know, and, and it's just so like insane. Um, but the title and summary essentially tells you exactly what the ballots do. And the Democratic Party is like, they have the best slate. Also, the California Teachers Association, you know, if you're thinking about you know, what um, is going to hurt or harm the economy. Um, the, uh, uh, the California Labor Federation, they have a good slate. And so these big associations that have a track record of truth and issue area is important. One thing I'll say is, look, you know, we are as Californians, as Americans, as black folks, as Latinos, as women, as men, as trans, like wh- whatever affinity group you identify with, uh, we're not monolithic at all. And, and we don't agree on issue, then it's okay to not agree. And so I would encourage folks to really read different perspectives about these ballot initiatives and go all the way down the ballot. Don't just stop at voting for Biden or Trump or like you have to go all the way down the ballot. There is stuff on the local elections, like in Los Angeles, Measure X, right, which is huge. They're taking 10% from, you know, the criminal justice system's budget and investing that into straight to community, right? Community-based yeah. organizations, right? That's over a billion dollars invested, like of your money. Like, mm-hmm. this is not government money. This is your money every year coming out of your pocket. Where do you want that money to go to? Mm. Do you want it to go to pay for more law enforcement or do you want it to go to stop crime from happening before it happens, yeah. right? And so going down the ballot, looking at if you're, if you're a teacher, look at the California Teachers Association. If you're a business and thinking about What's good for business? They're usually skewed, more conservative. But the California Chamber of Commerce, they endorsed Prop 20 a long time ago. Now they're trying to rescind their endorsement. Right. And so the California Labor Federation, if you care about employees and workers. Right. So looking at what you care about and finding these big statewide institutions or statewide associations and saying, OK, what are they saying about this issue? Become politically savvy. Yeah. Right? Become politically savvy. It is important to have your own voice and think critically about these issues and what's gonna affect you and your family. Because for us to be droids and to say, well, vote this way or vote this way, like that's not what the democracy is. Democracy is people being informed and engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, look, I have a GED. I don't have a college degree. I didn't graduate high school. I got my um, good enough diploma, right? Um, <laughs> but, but, but I've been able to really like zero in on what's good for my two-year-old son and my wife and my son who's cooking in the oven right now four weeks away, right? Like, that's what I vote for. I vote, I, I vote for his son's sons. I vote for my mom. I vote for my dad. I vote for people that I care about. And I'm going to vote because it's important because if I don't vote, I think Michelle Obama said it super clear. She said in some of these precincts, and I work on campaigns, in some of these precincts, those precincts that Trump won were two votes away. Yep, wow. Right, right. You know, if you look at somebody that lo- local election, like school boards, five votes, 30 votes, right? Ten votes. When you get down to the local, people think like these large numbers. Oh, you want by three million votes or one million vote or five hundred thousand votes. We have these things called precincts. Right. And in these precincts, when you say, where's my polling place? Each precinct have a polling place. You look at your precinct, look at the precinct data. We are talking about three and four votes. Mm-hmm. And so have like a precinct captain and that person is bringing their whole family. 10 people, they can flip that precinct. Yeah. Wow. This is not about large numbers. This is about, when we say, when you have campaigners telling you every vote counts, we mean it, right? If you take 20 people to the poll in your precinct that is from your neighborhood, you could possibly flip that precinct, right? And that's what happened in the 2016 election. They were taking people to the polls like in these precincts. Case in point, you look at places in like Ohio, and they had like 16 precincts that went for Trump or something like that, and you go into the precinct data, like all you need is like 10 precincts in a whole state. Mm-hmm. And if you win those 10 precincts, you win the whole state. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so people are so focused because people are gonna vote one way or another. Mm-hmm. It's people who don't vote. So if you add just a little bit to that, add with a little bit sprinkle here and there and there, that's how you win elections. And that's why it's important, especially locally in California and, and citywide, vote down the ballot, encourage people to vote. If there is something on TV that you like, You're going to call and text all your friends. If there's a new Netflix show Mm -hmm. or if there's a baseball game or a fight or if you've seen something on Facebook or Twitter, you're going to be lighting up your text messages. You're going to be calling people. We should get that same level of excitement. Right. A a TV show that really don't matter. You know what I mean? A a sports team that really don't matter. But you're not getting excited about uh, a new tax that will uh, increase your property tax or a new law that, you know, your grandkid or your kid gonna be locked up under. That is what we're talking about. That's why it's important that when we say every vote counts, people aren't thinking about these large numbers, but really localized and how we can actually flip precincts and win elections and really change the trajectory of California and America.
0: Yes. Wow. yes. Yes. Well, we're definitely way over time and we still have so many more questions. Right. We have to do a part because I'm like I know. holding my bubble down. Over I'm like, here like ready because, to organize. I'm like, let's do backyard fireside chats. You know, the, the,
1: the, the, pe- the thing that people need is for everything to be con- condensed you know, in a way where they can understand it. And that's because you've thing. experienced, because you know, because you've been through, you, you're just making it so plain and so clear that and people will listen. Need. You know, that's yeah. why I'm excited about doing this because mm-hmm. I feel like right now, I'm like, we got to get it up. Like, yeah, we got to the, <laughs> listen to the whole thing, but get to the end though and just
0: hear, you know what I mean? It's yeah. This is great. Yeah, it was amazing. This is great. Um, it's I want to make sure that we get your information so that First of all, people that are people hearing this that are on fire after listening to this, how can they get involved? Where can we find you? So give us all your oh, handles. Socials. Give us, give
2: yeah, 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 yeah. I am consistent across all platforms: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, Mister J Jordan, M I S T E I J A Y J O R D A N. Mister, like they like Sealy spelled it out: M I S T E R. Yeah. Uh, Mr. J. Jordan <laughs> uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also. Um, Email me straight up, uh J Jordan, J A Y J O R D A N like The Shoe at safeandjust.org. It's like safety and justice, right? But safe and A and D spelled out, just.org. I do respond to every email. I won't give you my phone number because I don't know you. But <laughs> or direct message me. I I'm super responsive. I take the time to really reach out and give folks. You know, a political education. Um, We are going to start these things on our IG and our Facebook um, political education for folks about all of the props. Uh, Follow me. You'll 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 get a lot more information. The organization, again, that I work for is Californians for Safety and Justice. You can follow us as well at safe and just like safety and justice, but safe and just on all platforms, both Facebook, Twitter and Instagram we're going to start these conversations about the political education quick shout out to trey songs um he's leading our progress not prisons work a uh, shout out to john forte again who's who's uh, helping lead that charge as well a lot of good stuff popping off a lot of a lot of great work um and look let's do this again I, this was fun we got to, we got a whole nother part of our organization we didn't talk about, which is our membership of victims and people living with past convictions, which is a whole different story. Wow. Yes, please. I know. And Let's I want to get into there. the conversation Let's with, you
0: know, children, too, because we have kids that are on fire right now with everything that's happening. And obviously they can't vote, but that doesn't mean that they can't start getting educated on how they can so make a difference. Mm-hmm.
2: There's actually a there's actually an initiative on the ballot this year that pre-registers, um, 16 year olds. What? Hey, uh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is Prop 18. Prop 18. Okay. Prop 18. Yeah, yeah. So you can pre register when you're 17 years old. So Prop 18, yes on Prop 18. Yeah. Um, if you're under the age of 18 and uh, you're like, you know, I'm 17, you know, I should be able to like do something. Um, uh, uh, uh Definitely yes on Prop 18. Last thing I want to say, this is super important. There's something in California called the motor voter. Motor voter, right? Okay. If you have an ID or a driver's license and you got it in the past five years and you did not opt out of being automatically registered, you are registered to vote. Ah. Ah. So you're registered to vote. So go to vote.org, like vote, V-O-T-E.org, and find out your register. It takes literally 30 seconds. Type your name, your um, address. And you can see if you're registered. And you can easily register online, but like mostly everybody, I think it's 78% of people in California are registered to vote and you don't even know. Can you order, can
0: you get mail-in ballots through that vote.org?
2: So everyone will receive a mail-in ballot this year on October 5th. So the election is going to be, is going to be won and lost on October 5th. When you get your mail-in ballot, Mm -hmm. and we're going to do a whole thing about this, we should definitely come back and and talk about this. October 5th, you receive a mail-in ballot. Every single voter in California will receive a mail-in ballot. 78% of Californians have been automatically registered to vote. If you begin to receive like stuff from the election folks, that means you're registered to vote. And if you have, you probably have a wrong address. So go to vote.org to find out if you're registered. They'll ask you if you want to register to be vote by mail. You're already going to be registered vote by mail because Gavin made that decree. So it's important. So so folks are already in it. So let's do it. I
1: love let's
0: it. do it. Wow, wow, this has been amazing. Thank you. I have Thank chills you so, so much. What great way to start off the day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so right. much. Before you go, the one last thing that we ask our, our guests is to finish this sentence with three or five different words. I mm-hmm. am blank.
2: Ooh, I am blank. Let me see. I am you. Mm. Love it. I am you. Um, There's this African concept word called sawabona. And it means I see you. Mm. And not like I see you visually, but I see you. Mm, Right. I'm no different than you. And so when I look at every person on this planet, I am you. You know, so I'm gonna treat you like I would treat myself.
0: Yeah, I know that one's super (laughs) powerful. I'm like, can you give us two more? But I'm like, I don't know (laughs) if we need it. All we needed was that one. That's (laughs) it. it. Drop the mic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you you so much. We will definitely reach
0: out to Terry to get you back on. We really appreciate it. Hope you have a wonderful day and congratulations on the new one coming on the way. Thank you for listening. Interested in starting your own podcast? Visit us at iammusicgroup.com.